3: From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, though President Trump lost his bid for a second term, the 2020 election made clear the consistency of his support among white voters. Exit polls found large majorities of Asian American, Latinx, and especially Black voters all supported Biden. The only group with whom Trump won a majority was among white voters. In this hour Forum, we explore why, and we want to hear what you think, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. After four tumultuous years of President Trump that saw a mismanaged pandemic, where nearly 250,000 people have died, toddlers taken from their parents, reinvigorated white supremacists and more, many political observers expected the president to lose support from 2016. And while Trump lost the 2020 election, he did manage to hold on to his support among most white voters, and if exit polls hold, even grow his support overall. In this hour, we examine what, dro- what drives Trump's steady support among white voters and what it means for U.S. politics. Joining me is Jonathan Metzl, professor of sociology and psychiatry and the director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt University. Metzl is also the author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Thanks so much for joining us, Jonathan Metzl.
4: Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here.
3: Also with us is Erica Smith, columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Glad to have you here, Erica Smith.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
3: Also, Carlos Algara is with us, assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas at El Paso. Carlos Algara, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. Carlos Algara, I'll start with you, actually. Would you say that the campaign strategy that Trump employed in 2020 was similar to the one he employed in 2016?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question and I completely concur with the fact that this was largely a campaign that was a replication of 2016. I think one of the hallmarks of the Trump campaign was really trying to activate racial attitudes amongst white white Americans, particularly white working class Americans, uh, towards his electoral end and towards his party's electoral end up and down the ballot. It was a little bit unusual, um, given the fact that in 2020, Relative to 2016, he was the incumbent president. Right. And this was not, you know, a traditionally an incumbent sort of um, campaign in terms of talking about what you want to accomplish in a fourth term, talking about a record of accomplishments as it relates to saline issues such as COVID-19 uh, pandemic or the economy. Uh, so this was very much a replication of the 2016 playbook, which is a little bit unusual because, of course, in 2016, he was a candidate and in 2020 he was an incumbent president.
3: Erica Smith, what does the consistency and apparent growth in white voter support after an election like 2020 that as Carlos Algara pointed out was quite similar to the strategies that he employed in 2016? What is your reaction to that? What are your thoughts looking at, you know, the electorate in 2020?
2: Well, I think it was a surprise to a lot of people, as you mentioned. I think a lot of people expected Trump to lose support, um, you know, but as turnout increased, obviously he got more voters as well as uh, as Joe Biden did uh, over uh, Hillary Clinton from 2016. But I think there was a surprise, uh, just the number of uh, uh, people of color, voters of color who decided to vote for Trump, particularly after his uh after the, the past four years of which he's made so many you know, racist statements and obviously we have the COVID pandemic that's disproportionately affecting um, Americans of color, particularly Black and Latino Americans. So I think it was a surprise to a lot of people, um, particularly that even though, as you mentioned, as we all know, that you know, white voters disproportionately voted for Trump, I think uh, the really one of the things that people zoned in on, myself included as a columnist, uh, was just the number of people of color who voted for him, which was a little bit surprising. But I mean, I think it, it reinforces a lot of the trend. That we saw in 2016, which is you know there is definitely some you know a lot of white grievance politics out there. There's also more confusion in the electorate about um, it's not it's not as uh, demographics as destiny as a lot of people would like to believe.
3: And Jonathan Metzl, I guess similar question to you about the consistency and apparent growth in white voter support. I mean, as Erica Smith pointed out, immediately after the election, there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that uh, the president grew his support some with communities of color, though they overwhelmingly went for Biden. Um, and it's notable because, yes, as Carlos Algara is pointing out, he, he ran essentially a campaign based on racial grievance, um, white racial grievance. But that said, uh, I think one of the things that this this particular hour is focused on is the fact that white voters tend not to get the kind of attention that voters of color get in terms of their voting patterns. Do you feel like it's worth it's worth talking about and that it's an important piece of understanding our country?
4: Well, I, I absolutely do. Um, I've <laughs> written a book about it, and so I and so I think you know, and, and I think there should be more books about it and more thought. Um, and and I I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think there are two parts to this story. One certainly is a campaign that was run on um, kind of the politics of of white anxiety or white racial resentment. Um, if you just think about those those rallies toward the, toward the, heading toward the election day. It it was kind of this litany of kind of undeserving immigrants and minorities are going to come to the suburbs and take all your stuff. And, um, you know, kind of this protection of whiteness or this idea of whiteness under under attack um, that was, you know, all these very Latin terms like anarchy and, you know, looting and fires and bonfires and all these kind of things. And so part of this was just the power, the surprising power of that kind of narrative, considering that it was it was so seemingly so crass. I mean, it was something that's been tried by by Richard Nixon, by uh, by other politicians in the past that kind of whips up white anxiety when you head toward an election. And so I think certainly part of the story is about. Um, You know, the story about how could people not see through what what was happening. But the other part, of course, is that 72 million people voted for Trump. And I think we do a disservice if we say that only people voted for Trump for racist or everybody voted for Trump for the same reason. That's certainly not the case either. Um, I've done a lot of interviews about this, and some people voted for Trump uh, under that framework, of course, because of, of different kinds of economic anxiety. There were many wealthy white Americans who voted for Trump for, for business reasons. Many, many people voted for Trump because of what he'd done with the courts, and they believed that even though they could see his odious behavior, they felt more strongly about overturning Roe versus Wade or expanding Second Amendment rights. And so I just think we do a disservice when we when we... Um, overgeneralize any racial or demographic group, and certainly uh, white Americans are no exception.
3: Yes, and so, you know, what does it say to you that things like the egregious behavior, the racist rhetoric, the sexist rhetoric, frankly, and also, you know, transphobic and xenophobic rhetoric that he put out there and also built policies around could be overlooked in favor of business interests, say, for example, from the voters that you're talking about?
4: Well, a part of that Trump was giving many people things that they wanted in interviews that I did People would say, you know, what I care about most in the world is Roe versus Wade being overturned. What I care most about in the world is that we have a, a, a right to carry a Second Amendment that it expanded across the entire country um, on down the road. And so partially Trump was responding to things that people wanted um, in the business community. People wanted kind of lax oversight and more, more business friendly policies. So partially it's just an old story of politics wrapped in white nationalism, which is he was kind of. Giving people what they wanted, and they felt like the other side wasn't. So I think that's part of it, um, and 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 it's inexcusable, right? Because you would think that when you would see, you know, an administration locking children in cages or giving the green light to the coronavirus to spread across the country, that would be enough. Um, but, 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 I think for a lot of people, they felt like like Trump was speaking to their interests better than the Democrats were. And then the flip side, we can talk about it um, later in the conversation, if you want. But the flip side, I think, is that I, I think there, that the Democrats didn't do a, a fantastic job in some instances of articulating. Um, you know, articulating a kind of counter narrative to a lot of these concerns that gave people, again, people who were more inclined to probably vote for Trump in the first place, but there was no real counter narrative to say, um, yes, for example, yes, these lockdowns are horrible, but we're going to protect the economy and here's why we're going to do it. Um, that kind of economic anxiety was a profound motivator for a lot of people. And I think that there was also, to be honest, um, a, a failure of the counter narrative to, to, um, you know, I mean, obviously not total failure. We won big time. Um, but but I think that that issue of if as we go forward, how are we going to counter that narrative? You have to you have to you have to figure out a way to do it that's true to your ideals.
3: Hmm. Carlos Algaro, what do you think um, about what Jonathan Metzl is saying and also about the consistency of whites voter support for Trump?
0: Yeah, I think he brings up a very good point. Um, and I agree with everything. You know, it's sort of uh, you, you don't want to sort of overgeneralize. Amongst any sort of demographic of voters, whether that be minority voters and white voters. Um, my research speaks to a lot of this uh, dynamic of how racial attitudes manifest themselves um, in broader support for Trump, but also with for Republicans down the ticket. Um, so a lot of my co authored work with a colleague at the University of California, Davis, uh, looks at how white racial attitudes manifest themselves amongst not only Republicans but also Democrats and liberals and independents. And what we find is that in fact, if you're able to prime these attitudes, Trump can enjoy a broad base of support amongst white Americans, independent of their political ideology and also independent of their partisan preferences. So I do think that white racial attitudes um, has a pretty salient story in, in 2020. I think it's important to keep in mind also that um, if you look at the national popular vote, this was not a relatively close election. Joe Biden um, is looking like he's gonna win over 51% of the popular vote. Donald Trump is gonna win about 47%, 47.7%. And I think it's important to keep in mind that any electoral strategy for candidates, um, you know this isn't specific to Trump, comes at you know these a relative degree of trade-offs. Um, you know, Donald Trump has um, engaged in a lot of this racial rhetoric. And I believe that turned off a lot of voters. and you see this in the aggregate data uh, in suburbs across the country, uh, suburbs around Austin and Dallas uh, and uh, Houston, for example. It's important not to try try to draw individual level references from aggregate data, but you know this provides a little bit of a starting point. To suggest that there really was a trade off uh, for President Trump in terms of his electoral uh, electoral positioning and that he doubled down on a 2016 strategy that provided him with a very, very narrow victory in 2016 that was not able to be replicated here in 2020 as an incumbent president.
3: And so you're saying what was the cost then that you're saying where where was the trade off?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the trade-off is apparent um, looking at the last two election cycles. So for example, in 2018, Democrats picked up control of the House of Representatives on the basis of winning in relatively suburban districts. Um, For example, they held on to all their gains in uh, Texas. They held on to the gains in Kansas. Uh, So, you know, I think that's how we see it. Um, Mm -hmm. That manifested itself in 2020. And I believe that's where the trade-off is.
3: Well, we'll have more after the break. We're talking with Carlos Algara, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Texas at Austin, Erica Smith of the LA Times, and Jonathan Metzel of Vanderbilt University. And we'll have more with them after the break as we examine Trump's strong showing among white voters. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
5: This is
3: Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about why a majority of white voters supported Trump. Many on the political left have wondered why there wasn't a widespread rejection of Trump or white supremacy among his supporters that led to a strong showing in twenty in twenty twenty, though he did lose the presidency. Joining me is Erica D. Smith. She is a columnist with the Los Angeles Times, Jonathan Metzl, professor of sociology and psychiatry, and the director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt University, and Carlos Algara, assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas at El Paso. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. How do you think whiteness influences U.S. politics and voting? What did the consistency of white voter support for Trump communicate to you this election? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And just a quick correction, I said Carlos Algara was at the University of Texas at Austin. I mean at El Paso. Sorry about that, Dr. Algara. Um, and so let me read a couple of comments coming in. Keith writes, the elephant in the room seems to be that these Trump voters live inside a media ecosystem that manufactures and sells outrage. Is it possible that these racial trends arise from where people get their information?
2: Erica Smith, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I think that that's actually really accurate. I think that, you know, we've seen over the last four years and, you know, even before that, we have kind of two very different um universes and where people get their information i mean one of which is more mainstream media like the la times others are you know this kind of increasingly underground right-wing media that traffics in conspiracy theories and i think that definitely you know you have an, an incident that happens and it gets you know sucked into this this universe and it Comes out with a lot of conspiracy theories, and you, and you see that if you if you oftentimes talk to Trump supporters, they talk about things that don't really make a whole lot of sense sometimes. Um, uh, and I think that definitely informs the electorate. I think what compounds that though is that you also have a lot of white voters who live in areas that aren't very diverse, and I think that that's where you see that saw so that that. Uh, In the more rural areas, you saw that overwhelming vote for Trump where you just don't have a lot of people of color that people encounter every single day that might counteract that narrative. So it's not as it's why cities, I think one of the reasons and I'm sure Jonathan and Carlos could comment on this. But I think this is one reason why cities tend to go blue and why some of the rural areas tend to go red. So I definitely think they all play together to kind of play off of each other to to kind of get the result that we saw.
3: Jonathan Metzl, this listener writes, it's not generalization. The majority of white Americans voted for Trump because of racism. Most whites view the Democratic Party as the party of diversity, which is counter to white interests and values. Your reaction?
4: Well, um, you know, again, it's not an either or. Right? I mean, I think it's indisputable that Trump ran a campaign and a presidency that was based on on racism and, and based on really the, the worst kinds of impulses. I mean, it wasn't just like biases in your mind, but actual real-world implications that actually had horrific uh, implications for for many people. And so, I have no problem saying that. My my the point I was making before um, is that when we say that racism is the only reason people are, are white Americans are voting for Trump, then we're categorizing working I mean again there were 72 million people who voted for trump and and so i I would just posit that there's a different reason why somebody in a you know in a coal town for example or in a white rural area would vote for trump uh, as opposed to um as opposed to uh, I mean again many wealthy people voted for trump as well and, and that who don't live in, in kind of you know hillbilly elegy town. And so I think really you, you have to start with the, the framework. Why didn't people reject th- this racism? Why wasn't it just a deal breaker? Um, but then the next level is what was Trump promising or giving or um, enabling in people? You know, kind of that second tier. And I would say that people people just had different different, inf- different influences, different impetuses for that kind of vote. And I really think it's important to understand uh, why that is. What was Trump giving people or promising people. And I would posit that it's different for people demographically, socioeconomically, geographically in a a particular way. So I think that's, that's a huge part of it. And then I also think getting back to what Erica was saying, there was just a tremendous amount of disinformation that was targeting different groups and really playing, amplifying these, these different narratives um, as well. So there it's not like every single person is consuming Fox news, exactly the same, for example. So I just think that there's a diversity out here of, of reasons, And, and we start to, to kind of bury down into these 72 million votes. I just think it's important that we we try to we try to figure this out, not to chase white sympathy. Let me be clear. That's not the point. Uh, but the point is to understand um, these different narratives to figure out how, how it was that we have a, a country where 72 million people voted for, for something like this.
3: Well, let me go to Sydney in Santa Rosa. Hi, Sydney. Join us.
6: Um, hi. Hi. Um... My question actually is somewhat associated with with that last remark about the disinformation. One of the things that's been on my mind a lot is the, you know, this real divide that folks like me, I'm I'm 50, um, have felt with family members who continue to support Trump and we don't understand why. And, you know, one of the things that I said when I called in was, you know, part of growing up and maturing and becoming an adult is realizing your parents aren't perfect. I think we can all cope with that. But this serious disconnect, you know, when we see our parents voting for someone that we so vehemently disagree with and disapprove of, that has been very difficult to handle um, and very sort of disillusioning, um, if you will. And, And one of the things that's bothered me the most about all this is my parents, who are very just normal middle class people, are not affected positively by Trump's, you know, financial and economic policies. They're not heavily invested in the stock market. And yet they continue to refer to that as why they want to support him. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that point, that, you know, now people believe that somehow the stock market going up is positively affecting them, even though they're not really heavily invested in the stock market. And I'm curious about that. Was it just about the disinformation? Is it all about listening to Fox News all day? What is up with that?
3: Jonathan, I think I'll have to go back to you on Sydney's question.
4: Yeah, that that was kind of my book, Bang of Whiteness, is is exactly the story. And I've been talking to a lot of people who have very similar experiences right now. And part of it, uh, just not to call her parents, um, you know, who who knows what their motivations are, but I would say that Trump effectively sold um, this kind of kind of white resentment story, you know, you're under attack, people, undeserving immigrants and minorities are out to get things that are yours. If you don't vote for me, who's going to protect you? And so partially the story is about how he's sold this narrative to people who, who are not overtly racist, but, but the minute you start scaring the bejesus out of people, uh, that there's only so much of this thing that's going around uh, that, that can go around and I'm going to protect for you. And if you elect these other people, they're going to take it away from you. And and that's a that's the white privilege narrative of this country in a way. is. Um, and, and, and in many instances in my research, I found that people got so afraid that they would vote for policies that ultimately um, hurt them, right, Uh, not just the stock market, but I found people voting against the Affordable Care Act, even though they needed health care. I found people uh, voting for budget cuts that influenced their own kids' schools, and so partially it's that story of without a kind of truth and reconciliation and reparation to create a kind of horizontal America where people see that their neighbor's success and their own success are intertwined. Uh, We're just very racially, easily racially divided in ways that, that people feel prone to this kind of zero sum thinking. And so I think that's that's a huge, huge, huge part of it is just the way that that happens. And then the other part, I, I had a piece come out in the Boston Review a few weeks ago um, that looks at the politics of white anxiety. And it looks particularly at the ways in which people are then targeted by these disinformation campaigns that amplify these stories about, oh, somebody's going to come take your stuff. And if you don't support Trump, um, you're going to lose it all.
3: Do you think this contributes to the notion of white victimhood? I mean, that they are, in fact, the people who are, you know, being victimized as opposed to people who hold power in society and upholding a power structure that benefits them.
4: I mean, I think all of all <laughs> the panelists would answer, I think everybody here is working on that same issue. I, I think that the issue is that it basically ca- Crafts the aggressors as the victims. And also a lot of people really are suffering. I mean, let's not forget we have a pandemic right now where a lot of people, a lot of communities are suffering. And so, in a way, if you can, if you can cast people as the victims in a way that that blocks a kind of self-reflection about participation, um, I think it, it I think it's just a very, very, very powerful narrative. And like it or not, Trump's a great was a great salesman. And so I I just I think that people need to recognize. You know, Erica was talking about the the black the black male vote in particular. They've been they've been targeting black male voters for over a year before the election, using similar kinds of narratives. Um, so it wasn't surprised to me that that it happened. So it, it's this strategy is very effective, I think, and 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 in a way we we need better countermeasures.
3: Well, one of the things, Carlos Algara, that I found interesting was that there was a big growth of support among all races, but particularly from white people for the national sort of reckoning with racism after the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But it feels like more recent surveys, you know, even as early as is like August or September showed sort of that support almost waning immediately across the country.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's a great point, and I think that speaks to what political scientists called uh, sort of this punctuated equilibrium, right, where an issue becomes salient, and then it sort of gets out of the consciousness of people's minds. I think one thing, it's important to step back for a second and really think about, you know, what are the important predictors of uh, vote choice in the United States? It's partisanship, and then it's ideological preferences, I think a lot of what's going on, um, speaking to the previous caller, is that a lot of Republicans are engaging in what we call motivated reasoning, where they rationalize their support for, um, you know, Republican candidates, not just Donald Trump, but up and down the ticket. One way to do that is, you know, looking at the stock market, for example, and giving Donald Trump credit for that. I think it's also important to consider that we have a wide range of heterogeneity amongst Republicans, looking at Donald Trump as a person and Donald Trump as the president. You look at individual valuations of some of his uh, character traits, such as honesty, such as trustworthiness, such as competence, particularly as it relates to COVID, he gets much lower marks on those considerations than he did in his vote share, than he did in his presidential approval. So what I think is going on here is that as it relates to race, I think a lot of voters are willing to look past his rhetoric and look at other considerations that are, frankly, more salient to them. I think the Republicans um, up and down the ticket, particularly in the House, were uh, trying to draw a policy contrast with Democratic candidates. They were talking about, you know, quote unquote socialism. They were talking about, um, you know, liberal policies as a way to sort of drive up support knowing very well that at the top of the ticket, they had a deficiency in terms of the quality of their candidate because of the simple fact that, you know, Donald Trump received uh, low marks throughout his presidency in terms of, you know, these what we call these sort of leadership attributes, these sort of valence attributes. Um, So I I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of voters um, that voted for Donald Trump are voting consistent with their partisan and ideological preferences, that they may be willing to look past his deficiencies, you know, as as a person and as a candidate and really vote for him and Republicans up and down the ticket on the basis of, you know, his ideological positions and also, you know, judges and economic policies that are conservative that he has passed over his four-year term.
3: Well, Lisa writes, what is racism? Racism is power, which is why you have poor whites undermining their own interests and vote to keep whites in power. Erica Smith, I am curious about your thoughts around what has happened with what was earlier support for really looking at structural racism, or or I don't know, I mean, maybe it wasn't fully felt or, or real, but, but there was at least you know, uh, vocal support for trying to really reckon with it as a nation and for the fact that it really seems to have have waned?
2: I think it's kind of of to what Carlos was saying. I mean, I think that, you know, over the summer, it was an issue that, you know, no American could really escape. I mean, after George Floyd, there were marches all across the country in, in towns uh, small and in big cities. And uh, these marches, of course, were um, cross-culture. They were very diverse, uh, driven by a younger set of Americans than in, in protests in the past. Um, and I think that, you know, it was it was a great thing to see. But I also think that, you know, we live in this, this era where the news cycle is, you know, hour by hour, particularly under Trump. And so I think that people just kind of, it just got lost in the shuffle a little bit. And I think that for for Americans of color, particularly for Black Americans who we, we see overwhelmingly voted against Trump, I mean, this is an issue that um, that Black Americans just don't forget. I mean, it's what you, it's your life that you live. And so it was something that's still very much a part of, you know, daily life and protesting. And, you know, these conversations are still happening in cities and counties throughout California and across the country. But I think for a lot of Americans, it became... Um, thing that people just kind of forgot about or just put less focus on, um, particularly as the pandemic uh, kind of took over the news cycle again. And so I think that it wasn't so much that people didn't care. I think they just cared less. And I think when it's not in your face in the way that it was in, you know, June and July, it just becomes a little bit less salient of an issue. And I think we saw that at the ballot box.
3: Jonathan Metzl, do you think oh, I, discomfort also played a role in in the importance of it waning among white voters because to really address it is to also really sort of interrogate uh, your position of power.
4: Right. No, I think part of it, part of it. I mean, it's funny because you know I, I certainly completely agree with Erica that many people live this every day, live this injustice every day, and they they don't have the they don't have the luxury of, of forgetting about it. Um, you know, not just police brutality, but just inequity in our society and. Um, but but I do think that um, you know that I, I just think that there were so many other forces at play, right? And, and so certainly, I just want to emphasize again that in moments of racial unity, um, you know, we, we, they were incredible over the summer. Eighty-five percent of people supported um, some kind of some kind of reform. It was um, very high numbers of Americans, and then a couple of things happened. And one was again these um, these shifts. People started getting uncomfortable, like. Um, and, and then the, uh, about, you know, actually t- changing their own <laughs> lives or re-examining themselves. But partially it was also about these disinformation networks. I, I, uh, I you know, I, a lot of people I know are working on this. And basically, as happened with the Ferguson protests on down, um, there are these really active networks that, for example, amplify looting and make it look like every single protester is a looter they play to themes that um, maybe on the fence uh, voters or or people uh, about breakdowns of law and order about unfairness they're like these actually time-tested themes that then just get pumped out on social media to the point where people um, you know who Maybe or may or may not be inclined to agree with protests. Um, start to feel like these these themes are are being replayed, and, and you see protests waning. And so I think it's a two-part story. Number one, there's just a history of short white attention span for these issues, honestly. And the other is there are active, really, really active networks that try to change the channel and start, you know, start making people think that that. That protests for social justice are, are are threats as opposed to ways to better society.
3: Well, Marv yeah. writes to me. Quite clear why many of the white people voted for Trump. The Democratic Party has abandoned the middle class, mostly white people who used to have decent jobs. NAFTA took away many jobs and the promises of retrained folks haven't happened in any meaningful way. They feel abandoned. Jesse writes, there seems to be a disconnect with white voters who believe that Democrats are looking for a socialist society. Nothing could be further from the truth. If anything, Trump continues to degrade our democracy and make the U.S. look more like an authoritarian regime. We'll get more of your thoughts after the break. We're we're examining Trump's strong support among white voters with Jonathan Metzl, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry, and the Director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt, Erica Smith, a columnist at the Los Angeles Times, and Carlos Algara, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Texas at El Paso. We're also asking you, our listeners, how does whiteness influence U.S. politics and voting? And what did the consistency of white voter support for Trump communicate to you? 866-733-6786 is the number. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. You can also post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those
7: parts of our house where the Internet just won't go.
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Jonathan Metzl, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University, Erica Smith of the Los Angeles Times, and Carlos Algara, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Texas at El Paso. And we're talking with you, our listeners. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. What influence do you think whiteness has on U.S. politics? What do you think is behind Trump's strong showing among white voters? Pete tweets, why is the electorate so emotionally illiterate? Trump is a psychopathic liar and a malignant narcissist. How could this not be obvious? How? Uh, Let me go to caller Mark in Redwood City. Hi, Mark. Join us. I Uh, I think so. Do you mind getting just a little closer to your phone?
8: Let me get you. Oh, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, I actually voted for Trump. I voted for Hillary the first time because I knew Trump would be a disaster because of his uh, interpersonal relations, you know, the way he talks. But I just had to vote for him this time around because there are zero Republicans anywhere in California. And I think it's very damaging for a group of liberal pundits.
3: You know what, Mark? I am really sorry. Your line is breaking up. But one of the things that I think Mark was bringing up was the fact that there are so few uh, Democrats uh, here in in the state of California, actually, or that Democrats hold so much political power uh, in the state and that it was important to have republican voices. I don't know if you have any comments on that Erica D Smith, but
2: um just so I my understanding, I, I think that, you know, it's I guess I'm a little bit confused about the question. <laughs>
3: okay. um, well, anyway, I do think that there is this important conversation to be had potentially Carlos Algara about the fact that for a lot of a lot of people there's been real discomfort about the fact that there isn't necessarily a debate or an ability to have a debate across the parties because they seem so ideologically polarized at this point.
0: Yeah, and and, you know, um, to the caller's credit, um, this election was a very stark policy contrast, um, you know, between Joe Biden who advocates liberal policies and Donald Trump who has signed into law and has appointed judges that have been very conservative in nature. And I think that's one of the things why, um, you know, a previous caller or a tweet mentioned, you know, how could, how could it be that 72 million people voted for Donald Trump? Of course, you know, my research and the research of others, um, especially Jonathan's, um, you know, tells a very good story about, you know, racial attitudes, how that's a predictor of, Support for Trump, and of course, there is a racial dynamic underlying Trump's support. But it's also important to keep in mind that this election offered a very stark policy contrast between the two candidates, and also between the two parties. I think it's pretty telling that on the same night as as Donald Trump was being defeated uh, pretty handedly nationally in the popular vote, Republicans picked up seats in the House. And it looks like Republicans have cut in half the number of seats that they need to win to take back the House. And they're very well positioned to take back the House in 2022. I think there's no question that Republicans in the House were well served by drawing a policy contrast with Democrats, by framing Democratic candidates as being far left, particularly uh, in very conservative districts that were just ripe for the picking. A lot of the Democrats that lost were from districts carried by Donald Trump, according to the preliminary data. That suggests that the Republicans did a very successful job in nationalizing this election and nationalizing a policy differential in their advantage. That the Democrats were this party of liberal policies, that they were this party, um, you know, for for certain so, quote unquote socialized policies as it relates to health care. And I think that was very successful, particularly and also in terms of mitigating the, their losses in the United States Senate. The United States Senate, I, was, I would argue, was the biggest source of disappointment for national Democrats. They were well poised um, you know, to overcome a bias that they face in the Senate and give President elect Biden a majority. And it looks like they failed in that regard. Um, and I think one of the reasons that they probably failed. Was, you know, again, this sort of contrast, um, you know, between a conservative Republican and a far left Democrat. And I think that works in places that Donald Trump uh, won, such as North Carolina, Iowa, and uh, and in other places, Kansas. Uh, So, you know, I I do think if you look up and down the ballot, um, you know, this election sends a clear message. uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a mixed message because congressional Republicans. Did have a very good night that Tuesday, while Donald Trump was heading down in defeat, um, you know, at the top of the ticket.
3: Erica Smith, Biden has made a call for healing and unifying the nation. And I wonder what that looks like to you. What do you think effective healing and unifying the nation really looks like and requires
2: I mean, in a word, I would say complicated. But I think that you know, after uh, four years or five years, really um, of Trump, I think a lot of people are just not ready to 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 reconcile yet. And you know, I, I think that that's going to be one of Biden's biggest tasks as president, and and along with Kamala Harris as vice president, is trying to bring the country together. And as Carlos was just talking about, you know, with the split um, in the Senate and the House, I mean, he's going to be, in all likelihood you know, presiding over a government that's going to be divided as well. And so I think that, you know, there's a couple of things that are going on. So I think that, you know, with Democrats, I think they're left leaning folks who voted for Biden. I think there's a reluctance to to listen to Trump or to listen to Trump supporters and and to listen to more of what is widely perceived to be white grievance politics. But as we've mentioned several times on this forum that, you know, Trump supporters are not a monolith. There's lots of reasons for people to vote for him. But I. Um, I think there's a lot of people, there's just an impatience with listening to that. And I think on the the right, I think there's also um, reinforced by probably quite a bit of disinformation and other things. There's uh, a unwillingness to listen to people on the left um, and, and because they think they know that everything everything, why somebody would vote for Biden and for Democrats. And so I think it, it's going to have to be some compromises on smaller things. Maybe it happens at a local level where things are maybe not so quite so polarized between Republicans and Democrats. Um, but I think that it's going to be complicated and I think it's going to be hard. And um, I don't, I mean, I, I consider myself an optimist and I'd like to think that we could come back together as a country, but I think some of these divisions might be around for a while.
3: Jonathan, that's a similar question to you in terms of what healing unifying will require when you have this situation where a lot of people are are taken aback by the division. You know, you have a majority of white voters voting for, for President Trump and a majority of basically all other racial categories voting for Biden and concerns about this call for healing really just meaning going back to the status quo to keep the peace.
4: I think that um, you know I, I could not agree more with <laughs> what Carlos and Erica have been saying. Um, I think there there are two parts of this. I mean, certainly there some people will heal, some people won't. Some people will reach across the aisle, some people won't. I think there are structural factors at play um, that I think will make make um, at least maybe not bipartisanship but resolution a little bit easier. One is just to just think about how much our entire information slash political slash economic system is set up to reward conflict. Like if you think about Twitter, for example, um, it, it just, it becomes an echo chamber, other social media things. They they ostensibly were, were set up to let people talk to each other who were different than them, but ultimately we're just in, especially in the pandemic, in, in echo chambers. Um, the political system obviously is a kind of a winner-take-all system that doesn't reward compromise. You know, if you if you get a judge in there, their their role is to keep the keep the dogma, and so, mm-hmm. um, and so. Partially, I just think that the entire system is not set up for what it needs to be done. That uh, needs to be done right now, which is trying to imagine. Shared solutions uh, and, and to 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 common problems like inequity and the pandemic, and so partially, my personal feeling is that we need a, a fair amount of structural change to uh, to and to to make it easy for the earlier caller to talk to her parents, for example. I think that the structures scare people. And, and and I think that we're set up to be in conflict with each other. So I certainly think that, that, that that's a, a very big part of it going forward. And then the other part is really for Democrats. I feel like um, Carlos is exactly right. This election was a challenge for Democrats. Um, and so to think about really um, how to frame you know, Democrats support positions that many people want. Health insurance is a great example. Um, But for example, if you're for Medicare for all, I live in a town in Nashville where probably 30% of the people work for a health insurance industry. Um, If you have Medicare for all, those people are going to lose their jobs and not be able to pay their mortgage or send their kids to school. That's their fear. And so what's your answer for those people besides the the importance of Healthcare as a human right, and really get down in the in the nitty gritty and and say, um, you know, here here's an answer to your your problems. What I think, you know, people are worried about when they hear socialism, they hear I'm not going to pay my mortgage or you know stuff like that. So really start to of think about these concerns in ways that are, that are that are that better promote the important ideas that Democrats have.
3: Colin in San Francisco, hi Colin, join us.
8: Good morning. Um, I didn't vote for Trump, but I have friends who did, and I suppose, you know, one of the things that colored their perceptions was that the Democrats were offering giveaways to, uh, their voters. An example of that would be forgiveness of student loan debt. Um, uh, you know, the perception is that, you know, these people who took out student loans, uh, you know, signed contracts and should be held, uh, Hmm. to the enforcement of the contracts. Um, you know and not at the expense of expense of the taxpayer another example i guess would be you know the dreamers i mean i have empathy for um you know children who are bought there by their parents but you know where does it end you know does everyone who comes comes through the southern border uh with a child have uh does that child automatically get a green card
3: uh, well colin thanks for giving us a window into you know, your friends who voted for Trump and what their reasoning was behind it. I'm going to let that stand and go quickly to Brad in Foster City. Hi, Brad.
9: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, My question is, it seems to me like a problem about communication. I recall uh, Obama when he was trying to push through health care about 10 years ago, they did not communicate. And let's hand it to the Republicans. They are amazing at marketing. So uh, we really need to learn how to market. And uh, Trump did that with Twitter, just little taglines that people would just read. Um, So what I think is somebody like a Nate Silver 538 needs to put up the top 12 issues and basically allow uh, the people who feel disenfranchised to express their views, maybe in a real-time almost pulse-taking of the interest of the country. And I think just almost like how propositions have, like – detailed sections, I'd like to see what your guests think of this suggestion, to, you know, where they could then read up on that without going to either a left or right media source. What do you think? Thank you. Uh,
3: Brad, thanks. And and Brad and Colin's points are, are sort of echoed in other listener comments here, like this listener writes, I think that many white voters support Trump in part because Republicans have been successful at painting the Democrats as antithetical to what they value, in particular, liberty, meritocracy, and taxes. Shannon writes, sadly, Democrats have never seemingly had a marketing strategy, talking points, or an effective way to disseminate information. The GOP won by creating and instilling fear and telling lies over and over until people believe them. Carlos Algara?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think these are all very good points. Um, and, you know, one thing I sort of want to, pay, uh, you know, pick up is... A lot of the Republicans talking points, um, you know, as Jonathan mentioned, are designed to reach Republican leaning voters, right? They're not designed to, you know, galvanize or try to get support amongst Democratic voters, or left leaning independents. It's about mobilization, right? Um, So I think that's sort of where a lot of this rhetoric is coming from. Um, I, I do agree with the notion that Parties are a collection of interests and the Democratic Party, um, you know, promises a lot of policy victories to their coalition. The Republicans are no different. Um, You know, the Democrats um, run on issues such as immigration, uh, codifying DACA, for example. The Republicans also run on providing their coalition with a, a degree of policy victories, such as, you know, providing the evangelical wing of a of the party, judges that would overturn Roe v. Wade, which is a very important issue to them. So, you know, I, I, I do think it's important to keep in mind that the, these are political parties and that political parties are fundamentally about coalition maintenance. And I think a lot of the Republicans pointing out this coalition maintenance isn't designed to necessarily win new voters. It's designed to mobilize people that are fundamentally predisposed to voting for a uh, Republican up and down the ticket um, in the first place.
3: I should remind listeners, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Terry writes, with Kamala Harris being the vice presidential nominee or vice presidential elect now, but why are so few people just, dis- why are so few people discussing mis- discussing misogyny as a factor in why the election was so close. Another listener writes, self-interest drove voters to support Trump. It's a shame all of these Americans ignored Trump's racism, misogyny, incompetence regarding the pandemic, embrace of dictators, denial of climate change, and blatant criminality. Voting for Trump while being aware of all of this is just plain selfish. Erica Smith, your thoughts on these last two comments?
2: Yeah, I I think that there's a lot of reasons uh, to be appalled at the fact that so many Americans voted for Trump. I mean, the the list and you just named, you know, a handful of them there. It goes on and on. But I do think that, you know, Kamala Harris selection as as uh, a VP pick by uh, by Joe Biden. You know, it had a big boost for him, both in terms of fundraising and in terms of support. But I have no doubt that it drove uh, or further further drove away some voters who were already racist. I mean, I think that that or, you know, had or have uh, not the greatest views of, of women in power. And so I do think that that further cleaved those divisions that already exist in the country. And, and so I can understand that as well.
3: Well, let me see if I can squeeze Jeremy in here. Hi, Jeremy.
2: Hi, how's it going?
3: Going great. Thanks for joining us.
9: Sure. Um, Just really quickly, I was wondering if I could get the speaker's perspective on the idea that like uh, working class white people who feel disenfranchised, their futures actually have less to do with who is president and more to do with the fact that there's kind of unregulated capitalism that kind of prioritizes the bottom line over
2: human
4: welfare.
3: Uh, Jonathan Metzl, your thoughts on, on Jeremy's question.
4: I I I'll, I'll go back to what Carlos was saying before that the Democrats really need to do better. I mean, it's hard. The marketing, the the, the communication angle is very hard um, for Democrats because it's such a it's such a broad tent. It's such a pluralistic tent, um, and, and so I think in a way, when you when your framework is is white anxiety, it's much easier. It's easier for. Against a message for a particular reason, um, and it's harder for Democrats to have a coherent narrative because um, because they have many voices um, who are at the table, and, and so I think there has to be a way to amplify that. Um, because I certainly agree with the caller um, that many of the policies—I mean, that's what my book is about. It's just, it shows how many of the many of the policies brought about by the Trump administration actually shortened the lifespans. Um, of 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 white of white supporters, um, not just economy, but healthcare, education, firearms in a different way, um, climate, and so you just go down the pipe. People are voting for for policies that are they're shortening their own lifespans, and and um, and, and at the same time they're doing it out of a, a a particular a particular reason, a particular ideology. And so I just could not agree more with what what, what Carlos was saying before that in a way, um, how to how to sell that, how to frame that, because I think a lot of people. They they see in Trump it's almost like playing the lottery, like, oh, here's a guy who got rich and I want to identify with that or something like that. So really it, it is a question about um how can you how can you engage across such a broad coalition and, and really explain to people the policies that the Democrats want are gonna better their lives. Um and also addressing equity is gonna fix things uh, pretty, you know, pretty significantly in our country as well.
3: And Jonathan Metzel's book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Erica Smith, also with us, columnist for the LA Times and Carlos Algara politics, p- political science professor at UT El Paso. Thanks to all our listeners for their questions and comments. Blanca Torres for this segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening to Forum.
6: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation.
5: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.